Welcome back to Early Departures. Welcome back. I feel like there's no need to say that we're still quarantined. I think everyone that's just a given nope. at this point. Of course we are. We are. You are. Everybody is. Uh, hopefully we're providing some entertainment for you. And um, I don't know. Anything going on in your life? Mm, no. Nothing. Yeah. Nothing new. I'm. Nope. No. I was going to say nope. I'm like. I thought I had something, and I was like, oh, not worth talking about. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, I made apple crisp today for the first time, and it, I just want to eat the whole pan. It's Wait, so for the good. first time in your life? Yeah. Okay, apple crisp is a thousand times better than apple pie any day <laughs> of the week. I think it's because of the crisp part. Yeah. I love apple crisp. It's pretty much just, like, really chunky applesauce, hot with, like... It's like pie filling with just like sugar, crusty sugar on top. Yeah. I don't know what it is, but like I do not like apple pie, but I love mm. apple crisp. I like it all. But yeah, I did that and uh, pretty much, pretty much that was it. I uh, started working on a new puzzle and I'm doing a puzzle of Lake Louise right now that it's like canoes tied to a dock on that beautiful lake. And I just wish I was there. <laughs> That's all my puzzles are, or just like, I'm going to pretend that they're just like a window, and I'm like looking out my hotel window, and oh, look at the view, canoes at a dock. I'm I'm at Lake Louise. I don't know. However, speaking of boats, <laughs> I'm going to tell you a boat story, because you just got off the boat kick and got on to the murder murder kick, and now I am going to take us back onto the water against your wishes. Perfect. <laughs> I do love a good boat story. Yeah. So on July 19th, 2018, Tia Coleman, her three children, her husband, and her husband's father, mother, uncle, sister, and two nephews rented a van, and drove seven hours from Indianapolis, Indiana, to Branson, Missouri, as part of her family's annual road trip. Oh, yep, I think I might know where this is going. Altogether, 11 Coleman's arrived in Branson and spent a little time at their hotel's pool and hot tub before heading to a late lunch at the Golden Corral, Ooh, which yeah. is a buffet restaurant. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> For those who don't know. And um, the Coleman kids were allowed to eat all the sweet treats to their heart's desire. So, you know, they got the, uh, what do you call it, soft serve machine and the little brownies and stuff like that. And the They probably don't have apple crisp, though. Oh, they might. I don't know. <laughs> it seems like a thing that uh, like a country-type buffet would have. After lunch, they were going to head to an attraction called Ride the Ducks, which is a tour operation owned by Ripley Entertainment, the same company you probably know from Ripley's Believe It or Not fame. Do you know this story now that I've said that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah, yeah, it's tragic. So the uh, I'll, you know for for those of those uh, people out there who have not heard this story yet, I will go on. <laughs> well, to be fair, I haven't like dug in and read a ton of details. I just know it from seeing it on on the news. Uh -huh. I have a general gist of what happened. Well, prepare to be devastated. The Ride the Ducks tour would take visitors sightseeing by boat around Table Rock Lake and also driving around the city of Branson. For anybody who doesn't know, duck boats are amphibious vessels that travel on both land and water, so it's sort of a hybrid between a boat and a bus. They actually date back to World War II when the vessels were commonly used because of their versatility. The Coleman family boarded Stretch Duck 7, that was its name, 
which was actually an original duck boat from World War II, which had been built in 1944, which has nothing to do with the story, but it's just really interesting because... I'll say that is really interesting. Yeah, some of the duck boats in operation right now are just reproduction or new models, and some of them happen to actually be from World War II. So duck boats are actually a really common tourist attraction in Boston, and for some reason I never put it together that they were used elsewhere. Yeah, so it was nearly 90 degrees out, uh, you know, it was July in Missouri, and earlier in the day, the National Weather Service had issued a severe thunderstorm watch for the area and said winds of 70 miles per hour were possible. Tia Coleman remembers that the tour operator said that because of the storm warning, they would first do the lake part and drive on surface roads afterward. When they boarded the boat, Tia remembers the sky looking blue and fine. An employee on board told the passengers, quote, Above you are your life jackets. I'm going to show you where they are, but you won't need them, so don't worry. Which is like, uh, <laughs> like f- foreshadowing. If somebody says that's where your life jackets are, don't worry, you don't need them. Like you can just believe that the world is about to jinx you hardcore. But I also feel like that's probably like standard safety talk they have to tell you when you get on. You know. Yeah, but to be like, you won't need them. Don't worry. I'm like, where's the wood to knock on? Because I got to knock on some damn wood. (laughs) So at 6.28 p.m., Operations Supervisor Charles Baltzell checked the weather and told crews to go ahead and start the tour. Two duck boats entered the water, but one returned very shortly after, having had mechanical issues. Since these were the last tours of the day, Baltzell turned his attention to closing out the cash drawer and did not continue to monitor the weather. So that was at 6.28 p.m. At 6.32 p.m., four minutes later, the National Weather Service issued a severe thunderstorm warning for the area of Branson and the lake where the duck boat tour would take place. The sky was clear and the water was calm until about 28 minutes later. At 7 p.m., the storm swiftly rolled in with heavy rain and 75-mile-per-hour winds. That's crazy. Yeah, 75-mile-per-hour winds is like... Like, really, really strong. Like, what's an F1 start at? Like, 90? I don't know, but I know that, like, a really low-level hurricane can be, like, you know, what, 90 miles an hour or something like that, so... Right, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, like, an F1 tornado would start at about 90, you know? Yeah. The water quickly became choppy, and waves began to splash into the boat. Being that it was such a hot day, Tia said the splashing actually felt refreshing. Stretch Duck 7 began bobbing up and down, turned back toward the shore, and began struggling to make its way back. And this is the part that really freaks me out, because I know this is how it goes down in real life. Tia believes it was only about a minute between the time she began to worry and finding herself underwater. Mm -mm. She said there were, quote, big, huge waves, choppy. Everyone started getting like, hey, this is getting a little bit too much. And then it got really choppy and big swells of water started coming into the boat. Then a really huge wave swept over. And when the wave swept over, the last thing I heard my sister-in-law say was, grab the baby. Mm. You can just imagine, you know, whenever you get on a boat, like one time I was on a boat in the Bahamas and the water was crazy choppy because there was a storm and it sounded like exactly like this situation. And it was like, as soon as I walked on the boat, I was like, where are the life jackets? Because I know that this is how it happens. It's Yeah, it's instant. You don't even have time to think about, I need to grab my life jacket. It's like, boats can just go down. 
By 7.13 p.m., the duck boat had been, quote, overcome by high winds in a thunderstorm, causing the vessel to swamp and then sink. It sunk in 40 feet of water before plunging to a final depth of 80 feet. And basically what happened was it sunk in 40 feet of water, but because it also has wheels, it kept rolling underwater and then rolled into an area where it was 80 feet deep. Yeah, that makes sense. Tia recounted that she suddenly couldn't feel or see anything around her, and it hit her head on what she believes was the boat's canopy. She lost sight of her son, who had been sitting next to her. She remembers thinking that if her children were to die, that she just hoped she'd go too. She struggled hard at first, kicking with all her might to try to swim to the surface, but eventually gave up and resigned herself to just let go. Oh, my God. Like, drowning is, like, one of my worst fears. Yeah. Because your mind is active. Yeah. The whole time. Not that your mind isn't active when you die in other forms, but, like... No. Your body is fighting to get to the top, and I'm sure, like, you're just going mentally crazy. Your body knows what's happening. Yeah. And you can't... You just can't even take a breath and, like, think about what to do. It's like, you just literally... You, you know what's going to happen. And then also just, like, resigning yourself to just being, like, I just have to let go. Like, I give up. This is it. Mm-hmm. Soon, though, she felt warmer water around her and hands grabbing at her arms. She'd actually floated toward the surface and rescuers pulled her up the rest of the way. There were two emergencies called for assistance from onlookers around the lake. Um, there was actually, like, a larger, much larger steamboat where somebody had called from there to report what was happening. Um, And there's actually video of the boat sinking, too, which is, like, my least favorite thing in the world. But wait, that goes back to the whole, if you were Tia, right, was her name Tia? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Would you watch the video? It's like the parasailing question, like, would you watch the video of yourself falling, where I'm sure falling, you're like, this is it, I'm dying, Mm. Would you watch the video? If I were Tia, I am sure that I wouldn't, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> so, there were two emergency calls for assistance from onlookers around the lake. One at 7.10, so right before the boat sank at 7.13, and then one right after at 7.15. Divers arrived quickly and worked to retrieve passengers and administer CPR. And divers, first responders, and volunteers were on the scene until after 11 p.m., So, Stretch Duck 7 went down at 7.13 p.m., and only 20 minutes later at 7.33 p.m., the storm had passed. That's noteworthy because the tour usually operates by driving around Branson for the first half of the tour, and the tour was about an hour long. So, then after driving around, they spend their remaining time on the lake. The tour had been switched around to do the water portion first because of the impending storm, But had they completed the driving portion first, they would either have seen how bad the storm was or was like whipping up to be and they wouldn't have completed the water portion or they very well may have gotten to the water before the storm even after the storm finished would be the time it was time to go in the water. Yeah, the storm would have passed already. that, That window of clear weather. Yeah. Yeah. So when all was said and done, 17 of the 29 passengers and two crew members aboard the Stretch Duck 7 had died. Mm. Devastatingly, nine of the 17 fatalities were members of the Coleman family. That is so awful to have the majority of your family wiped out. Yeah. So only two Colemans survived. Oh. Tia Coleman, who lost her husband and three young children. 
And the other surviving Coleman was her 13-year-old nephew. So that's why I said I wouldn't, if I were her, I would not want to watch that video. Because that would be the video of your entire Entire extended family family going. No, that's fair. Horrible. Um, I mean, it'd be be one thing if you just, like, were on, like, a crazy, like, oh, my God, I was on a boat and it sunk. Well, that's more of what I meant of, like, how we talked about would you watch the video of you falling kind of. If you, lived- if it was just like if you and I were on a boat and it sunk, but we both lived, like I would definitely watch that. I'd be like, "Holy shit!" I'd be like, "Look, yeah, I know that's you because there's a little blonde girl." <laughs> I'm sure if I if you died, I wouldn't watch it because I would be like, "That was a traumatic, horrible thing." That yeah, just it'd be happened. too devastating. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. seventeen out of the twenty nine people. Yeah, and then nine of those seventeen are her family. Wow. This, like, makes me think about how some, I mean, it's kind of related, not related, how some families don't fly together. Like, husband and yeah. wives don't get on flights together. Yeah. Because, oh, and it's like, man, I never, maybe I should never go on a family vacation. <laughs> yeah. I need everyone safe. An attorney representing the families of the victims proclaimed that the passengers might have survived if the attraction's operators had not ignored a 2002 National Transportation Safety Board recommendation that all duck boat canopies should be removed. The Mississippi Attorney General's office subsequently even sued Ripley Entertainment, claiming the company had violated the Missouri Merchandising Practices Act by not acting on those NTSB recommendations after 13 people died when a duck boat operated by a different company sunk on Lake Hamilton near Hot Springs, Arkansas in May of 1999. In an interesting aside, the NTSB actually blames the Coast Guard for essentially not requiring those guidelines to have been put into some kind of enforceable language. Mm -hmm. So lots of finger pointing going around. Included in that, the Ride the Duck employees, Curtis P. Lanham, who was 36, Charles V. Baltzell, who was 76, and Kenneth Scott McKee, 51, all faced federal charges. I, I remember seeing that headline when I when this popped up on the news. Yeah, and, and these are criminal charges as well. Right. So I'll just describe what these people, what their role was and uh, what they're charged with. Lanham was employed by Ripley as a general manager. He was responsible for all the day-to-day operations and the duck boats. Lanham's duties included setting policies and procedures for the operations and overseeing the training of employees. So basically, Lanham was the big boss as far as the location itself was concerned, and he reported directly to the president of Ripley's. Baltzell was employed by Ripley as the operations supervisor and was acting as manager on duty on the day of the incident. Baltzell was responsible for ensuring the duck boat tours ran in sequence and he acted as dispatcher. Baltzell's duties also included, quote, monitoring the weather and communicating with ongoing duck boat tours regarding the weather. So, so that was his job. He was the one who turned around and count cash, right? Um, Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. McKee was employed by Ripley as the captain of Stretch Duck 7. He had been employed as a duck boat captain for approximately 18 years. McKee is charged with misconduct and negligence by a vessel captain, resulting in the death of another person, so 17 counts of that. Baltzell is charged as an aider and abetter of misconduct and neglect by a vessel captain. Lanham is charged with 17 felony counts of misconduct and negligence by an executive officer of the corporate charter owner 
one count for each of the 17 passengers who died. And all three are charged with 13 misdemeanor counts, one for each of the 13 passengers who survived the incident with operating a vessel in a grossly negligent manner that wantonly and recklessly disregarded and endangered the life, limb, and property of persons on board Stretch Duck 7, or with aiding and abetting the operation of a vessel in such a grossly negligent manner. It's alleged that McKee operated the duck boat in, quote, in violation of the conditions and limitations specified in the vessel's certificate of inspection, and further, that when severe weather and wind speed increased, McKee failed to instruct passengers to don life vests. He additionally failed to immediately increase speed and head to the nearest shore. He's also alleged to have caused or allowed the vessel's plastic side curtains to be lowered, which created a barrier to the vessel's emergency exits. At no point prior to the vessel's sinking did McKee prepare to or order passengers to prepare to abandon ship. McKee did attempt to make two calls to the Ride the Ducks Branson facility using the onboard radio, but received no response. So that whole thing about the plastic side curtains Mm -hmm. just skews me out because I just think those are lowered. Water is coming into the boat and he never ordered them to be raised like wouldn't like you're really experienced 18 years captain wouldn't that occur to you that like oh if we go down no one's getting out of here because there's big fucking plastic curtains holding us in well that was gonna be my question about the the canopy saying that like they they should have been removed is it is that why the majority of people died because they got trapped kind of between yeah. the canopy and the boat? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And that was that was what happened in that 1999 Arkansas one too. Um so and honestly, like I've read about other cases like that, and it's not just duck boats. So I think a pontoon boats are like that too. Yeah. And the boat that I was talking about earlier in the Bahamas that I was on, it also had that like canopy on it. And so pretty much like any any boat that has a canopy on it, I am not interested in going on. And if I did go on it, I would be in the window seat only, <laughs> like no plastic curtains near me. Just, you know, be in a position where you can get the fuck out if you have to. Yeah, I want to be on the open bow. Yeah. I'll just be sitting on the ledge. Yeah, because it's like, honestly, like, it, you know, weather is one thing. And of course, if like, if you got big giant waves slapping around, like you could drown, even if you're a really great swimmer or whatever. But for the most part, if a boat is sinking, as long as you can get off of like away from it you know mm-hmm. you have a pretty good chance if you're if you're a good swimmer anyway a lot of the people on this boat also were very young or very old i think in the coleman family they had people ranging from one year to 76 years old so oh yeah a baby or a toddler doesn't stand a chance no if a parent or guardians not holding on to them when this happens and like you said it happens yeah. in an instant how do you even know to mm-hmm. reach out and grab a a little one or an elderly yeah member of your family and even you know like she said she heard her sister-in-law say grab the baby even if she was even if the sister-in-law was holding the baby she didn't make it either <laughs> you know so it's horrible Anyway, the indictment accuses Baltzell of directing and allowing McKee to operate the duck boat in violation of conditions and limitations specified in the vessel's certificate of inspection and failing to adequately supervise the operation of the tour. 
Baltzell also allegedly failed to monitor radio communications from employees while the vessel was on the water. So that's him going to count the cash drawer instead of watching the weather. The indictment also alleged that Lanham, while acting as executive officer of Ripley Entertainment, knowingly and willfully caused and allowed McKee, Baltzell, and others to engage in neglect, misconduct, and violation of law. Lanham allegedly neglected to establish training requirements related to the monitoring of weather and also allegedly neglected to establish and enforce policies and procedures related to the monitoring of weather. So basically because he was like the big boss of the actual location in Missouri, this was his uh, responsibility and job to make sure people like Baldsell would continue <laughs> paying attention to the weather instead of counting out the cash drawer. Um, and this part's really bad. And I feel like so many of us have probably felt this way about our jobs before. And this is just the highest manifestation of that. The indictment also alleges that Lanham created a work atmosphere where the concern for profit overshadowed the concern for safety. Yeah, I feel like this, I feel like by you saying that, I imagine this guy is just like pushing out as many tours a day as mm -hmm. he can, like get him out, get him out, get him out. Yeah, and probably count the, count the drawer, they'll come back eventually, you know, like. Yeah, and like that mentality. Oh, if the, you know, jeez, oh, and that just tells you that like we all have smartphones nowadays so if you're about to get on a boat for some kind of tour at some tourist hotspot if there is a weather warning on your phone don't just blindly trust <laughs> that the company has your safety or best interest at heart if that weather says it's looking nasty then don't go on the boat the company might not care about you and they might have enough money to pay out the settlement that your family will sue them for and not even feel it by November of 2019, so just about five months ago as we're recording this right now, the indictments against the three employees were all still ongoing, and 30 lawsuits filed on behalf of victims' families had been settled by Ripley's Entertainment. Tia Coleman said that, quote, the federal indictments in the case are another major step in the fight for justice for my family and the other victims of the tragedy that easily could have been avoided if human lives were valued more than corporate profits. She has gone on to crusade against all duck boat operations and created an online petition titled Ban the Duck Boats, which urges Congress and the U.S. Coast Guard to ban duck boats completely. Nearly 8,000 supporters signed that petition, which, of course, is not at all enough in relation to how horrendously tragic this event was, and I'm sure the 1999 event as well. <laughs> 8,000, like, where there needs to be more support <laughs> for that. So it's still an ongoing petition. So you can go sign it, and it's ban the duck boats, and it's on change.org. You can still sign it. And actually, if you go and look at it, you can see that, like, there have been people who signed it within the last, like, two months. So still going. Well, the only thing I would be curious of. Not to disregard the travesty of losing her family, mm -hmm. but I wonder what the difference is of a duck boat in an open water, like a lake versus a river. Because like in Boston, oh. they do them in the river. I'll tell you. <laughs> a little bit. Perfect. <laughs> but first, uh, Jeffrey P. Goodman, a partner at the law firm representing the victims, made a statement that, quote, duck boat owners, managers, and captains must realize that if they continue to operate their death traps, they will face well-deserved prison time. 
Additionally, any insurance company that continues to insure these lethal rides will continue to be exposed to massive judgments. So at the time of the incident, Ripley's Entertainment also ran duck boat operations in Baltimore, Maryland, Newport, Kentucky, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and San Francisco, California. So let me briefly tell you about some other duck boat incidents that have happened over the last couple of years. In July 2010, a ride the ducks vehicle stalled on the Delaware River in Pennsylvania and was struck by a barge, sinking the duck boat and killing two Hungarian tourists. Oh my god, can you imagine seeing a barge coming at you? Yeah. Like, I don't know. I almost, like, if it was coming and I saw it, I almost would have just, like, jumped off. That's what I was going to say. I might just jump. (laughs) Abandoned ship. Get out of here. Uh, yeah, so that one sung too. They, I guess they were lucky that only two people died. Uh, poor Hungarian tourists. On May 8th, 2015, again in Pennsylvania, a duck boat driving on the street struck and killed a pedestrian. And that's kind of significant because one of the complaints about duck boats is that in the front part of the boat, when it's driving on the street, it's like a massive blind spot. And apparently they can't see anybody like walking in front of them. Yeah, they're super tall. Super tall. Yeah. And I think that the way the bow comes out, too, it just like blocks their vision really bad, which is nuts that they're even allowed to drive around like that. I don't know. But on April 30th, 2016, in Boston, like you mentioned, a woman driving on a scooter was struck and killed by a duck boat, which, like, I cannot even imagine. I can't imagine being on a scooter, looking up and be like, oh, no, a duck boat. And I also, I know it sounds, like, ridiculous, but I can't imagine, like, that's your obituary. That's kind of what I thought the headline, like, woman, woman on scooter struck by duck boat. So these things are just reckless. Yeah. And then on September 24th, 2015, a duck boat broke an axle, crossed the center lane, and crashed into a charter bus, killing five people on Seattle's Aurora Bridge. Wait, they crashed on a bridge? That's even more terrifying. Yeah. So they broke an axle. They, they crossed the center lane. So imagine you're on a charter bus, and all of a sudden you see a duck boat cross the center lane. And coming at you and then wrecking And you're on a bridge, so you can be thrown off the bridge in said vehicles. (laughs) Nope. Mm -mm. Uh, And then, of course, there's the May 1999 singing of the duck boat in Hot Springs, Arkansas, that I mentioned earlier, in which 13 people died. So, overall, at least 43 people have died in duck boat incidents over the last 20 years. It sounds like even if they're going to let them still operate, even if they... Even if that, they should not be on the roads by the sounds of this. Yeah. Sounds like they're more dangerous on the road than they in the water. I mean, they sound dangerous overall. Yeah. They're more dangerous on the water in that when they sink, more people die. Well, right. I just mean like. Yeah. But, you know, I I, kind of feel like if they uh, remove those canopies and didn't have the plastic curtains, then maybe if and when they do sink, maybe fewer people would die and then they would be less deadly on the water. Right. Could they make them safer? But I don't think there's anything yeah. you can do to a duck boat to make it safer on the road. Yeah. Based on blind spots. Yeah. How big it is. Unless, like, maybe if you had, like, front-facing cameras or something to address the blind spots. I don't know. But yeah. I can only imagine also that those things probably break like shit. You know? <laughs> like, if you saw that you are about to wreck into a, a bus, a charter bus full of people, 
I bet you slam on the brakes and it takes a long time before you actually brake. Because I bet that it's like most things in the world where if a, an object does two things, usually it does both things less well than if it did only one thing. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. So it's not good at being a boat or a bus, <laughs> basically. It's weird to think of um, an amphibious vehicle, you know? Yeah. There's like a reason that cars are not boats and boats are not cars. Yeah, unless you're James Bond, you know? <laughs> Then you got the top of the line shit uh, and no blind spots. Yeah. But at this time, all of Ripley's entertainment duck boat operations have ceased. But that doesn't mean that other tour companies have willingly given up on their duck boat operations. The good news is that insurance rates for these boats has exploded since the tragedy in Missouri. And in Mobile, Alabama, a duck boat company stopped tours at least for this year, citing rising insurance costs, and Just Ducky Tours in Pittsburgh canceled its 2019 season for the same reason. So I'm thinking maybe the loss of revenue during the, this whole lockdown <laughs> will knock the remaining duck boat operators out just financially, mm-hmm. and maybe something good will come from all of this uh, quarantine lockdown stuff. Post-quarantine. Anyone who's listening right now, if you have the opportunity to go on a duck boat, just don't. Because, <laughs> like, someone's probably going to die, whether it be on the street or on the boat. Yeah, think think twice about that one. That's for sure. Oh, and if any boat that you're going to go on has a canopy, put your life jacket on. <laughs> and get away and sit nowhere near it. Yeah. And the scary thing is, too, though, is that even if you put your life jacket on and you're just wearing it the whole time, there's a good possibility you get get stuck up under the canopy then. <laughs> so Right, because you like float into it. Yeah. Don't go on a boat that has a canopy. And then when you do go on any other kind of boat, just wear your life jacket. You might not look cool, but just wear it anyway. Ashley is a big proponent of life jackets on boats. Mm-hmm. It's the first thing she grabs for. I do. It's where I, what I look for. It's what I grab for. I put my life jacket on. Because you know what the thing is? Even if you're the best swimmer and even if there's no uh, weather happening, you could get knocked off of a boat because maybe some big wave comes or they take a turn too hard and you could be a great swimmer, but you could hit your head and be knocked out. And if you have a life jacket on, life jackets are designed to roll you over so that your face is in the air side, (laughs) not the water side. So you'll live. But if you didn't have your life jacket on and you get knocked out, you can't swim and you die. Yes. Where I live, when you go to the lakes and they have like the boat ramps, Mm -hmm. there's signs that say how many people have died in the lake. And there's a number for how many people have died with life jackets and how many have died without. And like generally it's like 110 people have died without a life jacket. Only one died with a life jacket. Yeah. So they post those numbers big and clear for you when you get in like, look. There's how many people die when they don't wear one. Yeah. There's how many people die when you do wear one. Um, I like that was like a very interesting, straightforward messaging tactic yeah. about life jackets. This has been Boat Safety with Phoebe and Ashley. <laughs> Come back <laughs> next week when we talk about pontoon boats. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's all for me. I feel so bad for poor Tia Coleman. Yeah, that is awful. I cannot imagine losing my whole family. Yeah. I mean, this this not only impacts her, it packs, impacts the rest of her family that wasn't on their trip. It's a generational impact. Yeah, it was three I mean, generations of Coleman's on that boat. It impacts extended families and wives and cousins that weren't on her side. You know, it's just yeah. how the ripple effect of that is huge. Yeah. And pretty much, like, this is all she has left in the world is to 
campaign against duck boats. Mm-hmm. And I hope duck boats do get banned completely. They absolutely should be. And I did not know any of this. Like, I had heard about this sinking, but I didn't know the whole background and history about them and how dangerous they were. And now that I do, I just feel like I want to warn everybody else. <laughs> More than any story I've ever told on this podcast, I'm like, I just want to warn everybody, fuck duck boats. <laughs> Something. Okay. I am a, I'm still on the murder train. Cat. Um, This story, I feel like you might know, it was pretty widely covered um, by international news. Hmm. There is so much information. I really, really tried so hard to distill this down to be like a podcast episode. So. Yeah. I apologize to anyone who knows this case, knows more details if I missed something or left something out, but, like, there's just so much content about it. Cat. So, this story starts out with Grace Mullane, a 21-year-old recent college graduate from Essex, London, who was traveling around the world for her gap year. Grace had just finished spending six weeks in South America before heading to New Zealand. Upon arriving in New Zealand on November 20th, Grace spent time venturing around the northern area before arriving in Auckland on November 30th. Oh, I think I do know. Oh. I But you know what? I don't know. I don't know about it at all. Because, like, okay. in some ways, I'm, like, the worst true crime fan ever where I just read the headlines and go, oh, my God, that's terrible. And then I don't actually read the story. So. Oh, totally. I feel like that's how I engage with most news. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so this is this is always good when you tell me about something and I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't have to read it all myself. <laughs> yeah. So she arrives in Auckland on November 30th. The following night of December 1st, Grace arranged for a date on Tinder and set out to grab drinks. Mm. This was also the night before her birthday. Grace was turning 22 on December 2nd. Oh, so young. I know. The next day, Grace didn't return anyone's messages wishing her a happy birthday, and her parents hadn't heard from her either. Mm. It wasn't until three days later, on December 5th, that the police began to investigate her disappearance. The Auckland City Police posted a photo of her and asked for anyone with information to report her whereabouts. The hostel on Queen Street, where she was staying, also told police she hadn't been back to her room since that Saturday night, December 1st. Hmm. I imagine this is when the police started to comb through CCTV footage from the area and started to piece together her movements. Mm-hmm. Also, I also think it's amazing how so many countries use CCTV footage everywhere. Oh, yeah. And yet... And yet, like, we don't. I mean, I know we have it to some degree, but not to the degree yeah. other countries use it. It's because America is so afraid of Big Brother, whereas, like, I grew up half of my growing up in London where they had CCTV on every corner, and I felt so safe. You can't get away with anything. Yeah, my whole thing is, like, if I get murdered, like, that sucks, but as long as you catch the guy, like... Mm-hmm. I'm in favor. I'm pro-CCTV. <laughs> I think this is the second or third story I've, where I've talked about police relying on CCTV footage to help solve cases. So, yeah. anyways, in that footage, they saw that Grace was at Sky City, which is like a casino. Uh-huh. Um, and they she was seen greeting a man. From there, there are various other clips of them drinking at bars and making out. So they traveled to about three or four different bars. They're seen uh, looking at menus, kind of rubbing, not like rubbing up against each other, but, you know, shoulder Mm -hmm. to shoulder, kissing. Yeah. So there's several instances of where they're captured throughout the night. At one point in the footage, Grace leaves the table, presumably to visit the bathroom, and the man uses Grace's absence to pluck her handbag from the table and search through it. Oh, I thought was really, really weird. God. Wait, so she got up and left her bag? Yeah, which also... Mm -hmm. 
Don't ever leave your bag. Hell Creepy. No. Like, because my thought would be, like, if I didn't know this person and I just hooked up with them that night, my thought would be, it might just be that I'm in the bathroom and they leave. You know, they're just like, Mwah. like, I was waiting for a good opportunity to exit and like, and then just leave my bag there and then anybody could take it. Mm-hmm. No, I. but I suppose if you're drunk, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. So I just thought that was really weird. So kind of, I kind of added that note in there. Like I said, there is a ton of detail. There's details about her exchanging text messages with mm. friends during the dates, things like that. But I try to distill it down for this. Yeah. So the last time she is seen on the CCTV footage, she is entering the City Life Hotel around 9.41 p.m. And she's going into the elevator with her date. Uh, this is the hmm. City Life Hotel is where her date had lived. It's considered a hotel, but it's like a week by week apartment type rental. But this is where he was living. Uh-huh. When the when the elevator doors open, he was the first to leave. Grace was alone in the elevator just for a moment, and this is the last image of her. Huh. Okay. So from here on out, you'll hear me reference the male in this story is just the man or an unnamed man. His identity has been suppressed by New Zealand law. Hmm. This law is says that the court has to be satisfied that the publication of the person's identity would cause hardship to the person charged, create a risk to the trial, or endanger the safety of any other person, including anyone connected with the defendant. Hmm. So name suppression is also granted in cases where publication could lead to the identification of someone else whose name is also related. There's a lot of witnesses in this case. So, mm-hmm. um, However, some international media have named and pictured him. Hmm. And this is what happens to be where they're able to geoblock visitors from New Zealand being able to see it. Huh. Wow. But the New Zealand Herald points out that overseas media breaching the order cannot be held accountable. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to follow their – so technically, I could say who he is, but I'm just going to follow their laws and just keep them as unnamed. Yeah. So a detective checking Grace's Facebook page on December 5th – this is when they started investigating her disappearance – noticed that this man had commented on one of her photos. At 9.29 p.m. on December 1st, just 11 minutes before they left the bar together and heading to his apartment slash hotel at the City Life, he commented, beautiful, very radiant. Mm. At that point, Grace was only thought to be a missing person. The man's comment led him to becoming a person of interest. Two detectives met him in a downtown food court on December 6th. One of those detectives was Jason Hahn. During the discussion, the man claimed that the last time he had seen Grace was when the pair parted ways on Victoria Street on the night of the December 1st. Hmm. Han asked him for his name and address. The man provided a false address from where he lived in 2017, and he made no mention of the City Life Hotel. Hmm, Guilty. (laughs) When he was brought in for questioning by the police, I was actually able to find the recorded interviews on YouTube. Super interesting to watch. During those interviews, he told police he and Grace had a two-hour drinking session in a restaurant and then said goodbye on the street. The man said, we drank a lot of cocktails at the burger bar and we were having a good conversation, saying that the date had been pretty good. Mm. At this point, the police already had some suspicion and asked about CCTV footage of the man with a suitcase. The man said, if you're assuming I was using that suitcase for something, I've still got that suitcase in my room. You guys can have it if that's what you're assuming. Oh. The detective suggested he was lying when, and he responded, I'm being truthfully honest with you. In the following two days, the police moved the man out of his apartment while forensic scientists and detectives searched for clues. Using a chemical test known as luminol, scientists found evidence of blood next to the bed. The detectives visited the man again and said they had some updates on the case and asked him to come back into the station. It was during the second interview that his story was drastically different. Oh, guilty. 
<laughs> in an hour and a half recording, the man goes on to tell detectives what really happened after Grace was last seen. Mm. He said, we started having sex. At first, it was um just normal. It was very placid. And then she asked me if we could get into bondage. He said the pair ended up on the floor. I stopped at first and said, is this something you really want to do? He said, Grace told them they were in the moment. Let's just go with it. Mm. I'm new to all this stuff. I'm just used to having sex. It's just sex. At first, I was uncomfortable, but I liked her, and I was open to the idea, the man told the detective. Mm. This is really, remember this part of where he's like, oh, it was just, I'm just used to plain sex, and this <sighs> is just not my thing. He said Grace showed him what to do, included, including putting his hand on her throat. At one point, he said the pair stopped and took intimate photographs of each other on their phones. When the detective asked why, the man replied, it's what all young people do. <laughs> I mean, I hope not. I hope that's not what all of you young people out there are doing. Right? The man said afterwards he took a shower and fell asleep under the running water. He woke up sometime later and went to bed. He told the detective he assumed Grace had left. But the following morning, he noticed Grace's body lying on the floor where there was blood coming from her nose. I screamed and yelled at her. He tried to move her to see if she was awake. The man told the detective he dialed 111, which is their version of 911, but decided not to put the call through, saying he believed the situation looked bad. And I actually heard that during the interview, he mentions, like, picking up the phone and going to call, but he was just like, I just couldn't hit send. Yeah, yeah, because you knew you murdered someone. (laughs) Right? Uh, Guilty. Mm -hmm. He said he contemplated taking his own life. He says he tried to overdose on his own medication. Likely story. Yeah. I was in shock. I didn't know what to do. I went downstairs and I was just, I don't know. I was just all over the place. I didn't believe what had happened. I was just terrified and scared. He then went out and bought a suitcase. The suitcase that he mentioned in his first interview. (laughs) He also went to go get cleaning products. And along with those cleaning products included a rug doctor carpet cleaning machine. (laughs) And he messaged a friend to meet up for drinks. After finishing drinks, he headed back home where he put Grace's body into the suitcase and loaded the suitcase onto a luggage trolley, which is all recorded. Oh, God. I watched all of it. Not him putting her body in the suitcase, but I saw footage of him buying the rug doctor, buying the cleaning products, having drinks with his friends. Getting the luggage trolley, all of it. But like, I just don't, I don't know how anybody who, like, lives in this day and age doesn't think that all of this stuff is on film somewhere. Like, Oh, this guy's an idiot. It gets worse yeah. how stupid he is. Even if you're not, like, even if it's not CCTV on every corner, it's still, there's a camera at, like, the Home Depot when you go to buy your shovel and your rope you can always assume you're on video (laughs) your phone is tracked it pings towers constantly yeah all of your activity on the internet is trackable yeah all your searches of like oh just wait just wait at this time he rented a car and the following day around 5 a.m he put the suitcase into the car and drove out west stopping along the way to buy a shovel The man said he parked at a small pull-off on Scenic Drive, dug a hole in a bush where he buried Grace in the suitcase. God. He says that he then threw her belongings away into a trash can in a park. Mm. When asked why he finally told the the truth, he said, because of her family, because I want her family to know it wasn't intentional, but I also want her family to have closure. And the other night when I was questioned by police, I was shocked. I want to apologize for being misleading. The police were able to locate her shallow grave off Scenic Drive 
and I'm ugh, I'm gonna butcher. I practice saying this so many times. The Wadakakery ranges. We'll go with that. You know, I I googled it. I was like, let me find a video on YouTube. Yeah. Every video was like this scenic video where it was just the words. I was like, can no one pronounce this? <laughs> but the police were able to locate her shell grave off Scenic Drive in Wadakakery ranges on December 9th. Now, I know this is a ton of detail, a ton, and I'm kind of going through a little fast, mm-hmm. but I'm going to fast forward to the court case where more evidence was shared. The trial began this past November 2019. The trial lasted three weeks and had about 30 witnesses. The case wasn't about if he did it, but it was about was it murder. Wait, how many witnesses did you say? 30. Oh, wow. Okay. During the trial, the Crown defense claims that Grace's death was an accident during consensual sex between two individuals who were intoxicated. He says this is not a murder. Post-death conduct probably will not help, but his actions were consistent with those of panic. Hmm. Me, as a person, say bullshit. Yeah. While the man was telling the truth about Grace dying in his apartment, the details of her death he shared weren't exactly that forthcoming. During the police's investigations, they discovered that around 1.30 a.m. that night on December 1st, which would have been the evening of the 2nd by then, he started to search Google for the area where her her body was buried. He then spent a period of time watching porn on Pornhub. And then he took photos of Grace's body and then continued to watch more porn. Wait. And his original statement, this is when... Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. He took pictures? He claims they took the photos when they were having sex. But based on this timeline and his original statement, he would have been in the shower or asleep at this point. Oh, God. So he stayed up all night searching things like rigor mortis, searching the area where he ended up putting her body, Mm -hmm. watching porn. There was a break in his internet activity right around 6 a.m. when he returned to his phone searching car for hire and large bags near me. Jesus Christ. It's wild. Uh. In the following days, he was also searching to see if Grace had been reported missing, entering the term breaking news into his web browser. Oh, my God. Like we said, even if there is no CCTV footage, they can track what you're doing on the internet. There was also search to find out whether flesh-eating birds lived in New Zealand, (laughs) and then more directly, a query on whether vultures were a part of the wildlife. Oh, my God. Also, if her body is buried in a suitcase... Birds can't get her. What an idiot. I feel like he must have seen a movie or something where uh, vultures picked clean a body and whoever murdered the person got away with it because there was no evidence. And he was like, oh, wait, vultures. Do we have those here? Ah, shit. Yeah. So remember when he was asked about the suitcase the first time and he said he still had it? Mm -hmm. Well, he even went out and bought a second one at one point. So if police did ask about it, he could say, no, look, I have it. It's in my apartment. Jeez. And remember he said he met up with a friend at that time? Mm -hmm. Well, the woman he met up while Grace's dead body laid in his room also came forward, as well as three other women who testified about their interactions with the man during the court case. The woman he met up with that morning said he messaged me around 9 a.m. in the morning saying, good morning, how are you? And again, around 10.30, he said it was fine if I didn't feel like going on a date. And that's when I messaged him and said I would meet him. Mm. She talks about the dialogue they had. She says that he says he has a lot of friends that are cops. And he tells her that he's originally from Australia. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some mention that he's kind of like a chronic, I don't want to say pathological, but like he he makes stories up, you know? She said, we talked about him being friends with lots of policemen. He said they were having a tough time because of the bodies going missing in the Whitaker Ranges. 
police dogs can only smell four feet deep. So if they are buried deeper than that, they can't find them. I thought this was a bit strange, but an interesting fact. Hmm. We got talking about poisonous snakes in Australia, and he became quite animated about that. It was quite out there. Then he told me this really bizarre story. He said, It's crazy how a guy can make one mistake and go to jail for the rest of his life. He told me about a guy he knew in Australia who had consensual rough sex involving strangulation with his girlfriend but ended up accidentally killing her. It was an accident. Things went wrong. He was really upset that because he loved her, but the guy got done for manslaughter and was sent down for a long time. What we know now is this probably was him testing out his story on me. He could see I was a bit uncomfortable, and I tried to talk about more mundane things. I didn't make a swift exit, as I'm quite used to dealing with all sorts of people, but it was definitely weird. From there, she said she wrapped up the date, and she had an uneasy feeling and made an excuse to walk the opposite direction of him when they left. Yeah, smart, smart lady. Shit. That just makes me feel like the next time somebody is telling me some wild story of, like, something that happened to their friend, I'm going to be like, "Mm, did it happen to you? Is that you? Are you sure it's not you? You're just testing this out? Are you supposed to be in jail right now? (laughs) One woman who testified said they also met on Tinder and talked on and off for months before finally meeting up. She went on on a date with the accused in November 2018. Mind you, Grace um, was murdered in December 2018. Mm, Jesus. She said she had thought the two would have a drink in the city center, but when they met, the man said he needed to change his clothes. From there, their plans changed. They bought alcohol from a nearby shop and drank it in his hotel room. Mm. She said, he then pushed her for sex, and while performing oral sex, he pinned her to the bed. She said, he grabbed my forearms and put all the pressure on my arms so I couldn't breathe and I couldn't move my arms. I started kicking, trying to indicate that I couldn't breathe. I was kicking violently. He would have felt me fighting, she told the court in tears. I was terrified. She told the court that the man said in an accusing, cold tone, you don't think I did that on purpose, did you? Hmm. I was still trying to catch my breath, she said. I was just in disbelief and shock. The woman continued messaging with the accused for a number of months, telling the court she was concerned that she had given him too much information about her life and that he would stalk her if she cut off contact. I didn't want to aggravate him. I was scared, the woman said. Over three hours, the defense questioned the woman on why she continued messaging the accused. At one point, there was more than 700 text messages in a month, to which she repeatedly replied that she had been scared of him and was trying to keep him on her side so he wouldn't approach her at work or sporting activities. Yeah, I fully understand that. Like, deep down in my soul, I understand that. When I was watching the newscast of, like, people, the news was reporting, like, day 30, you know, Day seven of the trial. This mm-hmm. so, and they said that this woman had to take several breaks, and she was very distraught and crying because, like, she felt like they really laid into her about, well, why did you do this? Yeah. Another woman in court who exchanged messages with the accused since February, after meeting him on Tinder, described how she turned down his offers for a date because of his sexual request, which included strangulation, mm. and it made her uncomfortable. The woman whose identity was also suppressed said the accused told her he liked rough sex domination and strangulation because it made him feel more superior and in control Ugh, gross the woman gave evidence that on december 1st the accused tried to make a date with her hours before he met grace at sky city wow but she declined because she didn't want to do some of the things he liked sexually and it made her uncomfortable oh god good reason now remember in his like his confession interview he was like yeah we had sex but it was like just sex it's not stuff i'm used to yeah Mm-hmm. Okay. Except for you went around trying to get other people to do that all the time before you met her. And clearly we're trying it out 
As far as like strangling someone to death with that one poor woman who luckily lived. Ugh. Mm-hmm. What an asshole. Guilty. Now, the defense called the witness who knew Grace, which is one being a former partner. The partner spoke of the pair's mutual experimentation with sexual bondage. He said, Grace and I would have a safe word, most of the time which we had discussed, something like turtle or something ridiculous. Mm. Grace and I had also used a tapping practice. If Grace tapped me three times, then it would stop. There was also evidence of BDSM content in Grace's computer and that she was a member of BDS groups online. Mm. However... This is not about BDSM, if you like to be choked during sex, or whatever. It's about this man murdering someone and his acts to cover it up. Even if someone consented to a more physical, sexual act Mm -hmm. like this, it does not give you the right to kill them. Yeah. It does not give you the right to not report the death of them. Yeah. What you've done is still murder, and everything you've done after the fact to cover it up makes you that much more guilty. Because, yeah, I mean, and I feel like that's the difference because, like, sex acts gone wrong probably happens way more often than you or I will ever even know about, but probably doesn't make the news because the other person involved calls the cops and goes, holy shit, holy shit, <laughs> and they, you know, and they deal with it and they're honest and not murderers. <laughs> mm-hmm. There is also two testimonies from the defense side and the prosecutor sides from medical examiners, pathologists. Uh um, And they did say, you know, the bruises found on her neck are consistent. But they both, both on the prosecution and on the defense side, both witnesses said it would take an extreme amount of pressure over a long period of time, five to ten minutes, to starve the brain of oxygen to kill a person. Now, they do talk about how alcohol played. um, Mm -hmm. The defense said alcohol didn't play a part. The prosecution said it did. There's kind of back and forth. But regardless, Mm -hmm. alcohol or not, that's a long time you have to starve the brain of oxygen. Yeah. You still killed her. Yeah. That's what they always say, like, on movies when they're like, oh, strangle somebody to death, that it's never as long as in real life. I think you would have to do it. You know, it's like they put somebody in a chokehold for two seconds and they're dead. <laughs> like, oh, right. And we're we're talking five to ten minutes. That's a long time. I just think I'm only trying to think of like something that you do for a long period of time that's miserable. Like think about doing a plank for a minute. Think about how long <laughs> that seems in your head. Yeah. And then imagine trying to harm someone for ten times longer. But I even even more like realistically in my head, it's like the average song is about three minutes long. So if you choked somebody... Yeah, I think that might be a better analogy. Well, if you choked somebody for the length of three songs, that's, that's a, a long, long time. time. Yeah. So even though the man claims it was accidental, it doesn't change the fact that while her dead body laid in his apartment, he took pictures, Ugh. watched porn, hatched a plan to dispose of her body, and then even went on another Tinder date. Oh, it's so, it's so crazy when you lay it all out together. Like, especially, like, the taking pictures of her and then watching porn, like... If you were truly busted up about this because it was an accident and you're panicking, those are two things you would not do. Yeah. Uh, what? And three things you would not do is also go on a Tinder date. <laughs> it's insane. The timeline of his Google searches and the naked pictures of Grace were irreconcilable with his case, the prosecution said. Mm. Either Grace was dead when they were taken or he had searched for the Whitaker Ranges where he buried her body while she was still living, oh. thus showing he planned to kill her. Yeah. The defense could only offer they had been random drunk searches, and the Whitaker Ranges were perhaps somewhere the pair had planned to go the next day. Like, weak, weak defense. Yeah. So the killer had the right to use the rough sex defense, 
and you can look that up. I try not to get into the nitty gritty of like the legalities of some of this stuff because I'm not a lawyer and it takes so much researching for me to feel like I was giving it a really honest yeah. kind of dialogue. So anyways, the um, killer's right to use the rough sex defense. Um, and some of the reporting around this case kind of really upset a lot of people. Yeah. Fiona McKenzie, the founder of the campaign group, We can we Can't Consent to This, describes this as the ultimate victim blaming. She said mm-hmm. he gets to tell her story. He gets to tell her story of what she liked and how she asked for it. Um, so a lot of people are actually fighting um, to get the rough sex defense kind of thrown out. Yeah. If you want to look into that, look it up. But that's kind of like as much as I'm going to touch on that. Overall, after three weeks of evidence, hundreds of hours of painstaking police work, and a year of grief for a family that had built up to the moment where 12 jurors unanimously agreed that the 27-year-old man had murdered Grace. Mm. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum non-parole period of 17 years. As of this March, he had filed for an appeal. Mm, Of course he did. He's a fucking asshole. During his sentencing, Justice Simon Moore said, Manual strangulation is a particular intimate form of violence cold-blooded. Your actions reveal a complete disregard for your victim. You didn't ring an ambulance or call the police. Instead, you embarked on a well-planned and sustained, coordinated course of action to conceal any evidence what might have occurred in your room. And again, despite the murder conviction, her killer can still not be named. Yeah. I believe that goes until 2021. Oh, wow. Her mom was able to give a victim impact statement mm-hmm. where the guy kind of just slapped blank-faced. And in the end, her father, David, said in an interview that he hoped his daughter's death would not deter anyone from ever venturing out into the world and exploring their dreams. Oh, God. Well, I'm glad that he was convicted, and um, I hope he stays in jail for much longer than the 17 minimum. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of sweating. Me too. And um, stay tuned for next week. I'm still on the murder kick, mm. so... Yeah, next week I am I'm taking you I guess I'm on a kick of like accidental things that happen when you're on like nice vacation um entertainment things. But in any case, we'll be back with more stories and we hope that you will come back also. All right, and until then, be safe and depart on time. <laughs>